0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer.
1: And my name is Scott Peterson.
0: And this is episode 111 of Inside Quizzing.
1: A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible.
0: And in this episode 111, we are going to be talking about the rulebook project. So we've mentioned this before, back, I think it was, I don't know, about a year ago, I guess, uh, actually a little bit more than a year ago, when uh, the rulebook book pedantic nerd squad uh, otherwise known as myself and scott and jeremy and uh, zach uh, worked together to form up a replacement rule book that was functionally equivalent and loaded up onto a github website that could then be reviewed publicly and you know with tickets and comments and feedback and you know everything being transparent and all that kind of good stuff well uh that happened, as you know, because we talked about it. And that uh, version of the rulebook got approved either at IBQ or right before right after IBQ. I forget exactly uh, when relative to internationals it happened. But anyway, it became ensconced in reality as the official new rulebook somewhere around that era. Uh, And then subsequent to that, the goal was that the CQLT uh, should have formed a rulebook committee to then take over from this the the pedantic squad and to continue to reform the rulebook and and essentially do iterations so every year there should be well theoretically every year there would be a new updated rulebook granted there's probably not going to be a lot of changes every year but the idea being that there's always a committee that is focused on it looking at it caring about it you know uh taking suggestions from people all that kind of stuff and all of that stuff is transparent and out there in the cloud for anybody to take a look at. that's what we're going to be talking about today is the fact that as of, uh, I don't know, just not that long ago, a couple weeks ago or something like that, uh, the rulebook committee was officially formed. Uh, and Scott, right before the, the, the podcast here, you were asking me whether or not they have a website. I don't think they have one. I, I think it's the rulebook committee is mentioned in some of the minutes that are on the CMA uh, you know, uh, international website. But I don't think the rulebook committee is, is officially announced in terms of who they are. Uh, I think Scott and I are privileged to know who is on the committee because we pay attention to the rulebook a lot. But also uh, one of the folks uh, who is on the rulebook committee is, is Jeremy. And of course, we know Jeremy very well. So uh, he's been sharing with us kind of the status of what's been going on there. Uh, But all that being said, the the rulebook committee is formed and the rulebook committee is doing things. Uh, There's, uh, as of just, you know, I think yesterday, uh, a a couple of them were interacting with the GitHub instance and responding to tickets and engaging in conversation there. And that was really fantastic to see. And they're they're starting to take over ownership of this project, which is really exciting. Um, So... I should stop talking and s- ask you, Scott, like uh, what are your thoughts about such
1: things? I think it's great to have a committee and I think it would be good to have more information on the committee on the quizzing website, like who they are and are there such things as term li- term lengths? And if I wanted to be on it, what's the process like? Um, and things like that are, are generally useful, right? Like if I run a district, do I have confidence that the rules committee can't just institute something that I didn't hear about that's like there will be a minimum of 18 chapter references in every quiz international. You know what I mean? Like you kind of just want to have some assurances that you can have input or um, you can provide feedback. So it would be good to know about those sorts of things. Um, And there are a couple really, really nice qualities of how the rulebook and the committee are kind of set up now and the main one being that um, the rulebook lives on github which sounds really complicated um, because github is usually used by programmers but really it's just a different place that we put the text document (laughs) it's still text um, and that's really all you have to care about but now um, we can see all past versions we can see upcoming versions because changes can only be instituted once a year. So you will no longer have to deal with um, a rule being announced in March that is then used at internationals or showing up to internationals and finding out that there's a rule that doesn't exist in the rule book that will be used um, because changes will happen once a year and you will know when it's coming because um, it'll all be public. But in the same vein, anyone can provide feedback on the current state of the rulebook. So if you think that something should be different, you can open what's called an issue um, and explain what you think should be different and why. And that's not limited to anyone. Um, It's not limited to anyone. It is open to anyone. So you don't have to get approval or anything. Like, You can just go to GitHub and open an issue saying, "Like, I think that this should be changed and state why. And I think that's pretty cool because... um, We always want the best ideas to exist in the rulebook, but also have a rulebook that is most equitable for everyone. And say, like in PNW, which I'm familiar with, we may not know how things are run in Western Canada or in Southeastern or in Mid-Atlantic. And so I might be proposing a rule that has a different set of implications for like a different district. Um, And it's useful for them to say, like, hey, our experience has actually been quite different and this you know, and here 's what it 's been, so the rule book is versioned um it's it 's very public, and it is open to feedback for all and I think those are all very good things,
0: yeah, one of the things I want to echo about you know the the issues list is that the issues are the discussion that happens on the issues is all public right and i and and recorded for posterity, which you know, may seem a little bit daunting if you haven't posted on an issue before like that or, or commented on an issue before. You're thinking like, wait, should I second guess what I'm writing here because it's going to be public and it's going to be recorded for all time in eternity. And I'm like, well, no, it's, it's just one part of the conversation. But what's beautiful about it is that we don't ever lose your contribution to the conversation. So if you have a contribution, even if it's an incorrect contribution, it's still a contribution to the com- uh, conversation. About whatever topic that you're talking about, and being able to keep that, to be able to maintain it, to have it exist, to be able to reference it later, to you know, two, three, five, ten years later, looking back and say, what was the thought process behind how this particular part of the rulebook changed? Why? What was the rationale? What were what were the arguments for and against it? And and what were some of the other options that were considered? Like having that information there is extremely valuable both now, but also I think even more valuable in 10 years time when we're coming back to it and saying, well, wait a minute, is there something that we should reconsider being that we're in a universe 10 years in the future kind of stuff and having that available. So it's it's, it's extremely awesome in that regard. What I love about the new rulebook process is that everything is public, right? So there's no you know, backroom deals going on, decisions being made, everything is public. Now people might have side conversations, right? So, you know, before this podcast, Scott and I, you know, connected on voice and we're chatting and maybe we talk about a rule book rule or something like that. But ultimately our discussions that we're having in private are irrelevant because they don't, they don't actually change the rule book, right? Like the only thing that matters are the conversations that we are conducting in public on GitHub, uh, which is just which is fantastic because it puts everyone ac- across all of quizzing them on an equal playing field there's no like hierarchy of one person's opinion being more important or considered or having more power than anyone else right now granted you might have somebody write an opinion that is considered by the public at large the all of Quisington, to have more you know influence or or whatever but ultimately it's there in black and white it's it's fair and open right and all ideas can be considered by all of quizzingdom within this process which i which i absolutely love now the geek in me loves the fact that the rulebook can be easily forked in the sense that like you know if we've got the international level rulebook if you want to have your own local rulebook and alter parts of that rulebook, you can actually branch the rulebook. You can fork it and, and pull in changes from the, uh, from the, uh, from origin and so forth. And yes, that is kind of technical and you should probably be a little bit familiar with how GitHub works in that regard. And, you know, I or Scott or Jeremy or a number of other people could help you learn how that stuff works for your district. Uh, But the idea is the capacity is there for that to happen, right? That you could fork your own local district rulebook, make changes, and have it be constantly updated automatically from the international rulebook changes that might be happening uh, ongoing that that are fantastic. But there are some... Well, before I move on to the butt, I do want to point out, like like Scott was saying, GitHub can feel kind of nerdy and technical and so forth, and it kind of is, but the beautiful part about it is you don't need to know 98% of the nerdy stuff to actually be able to use it effectively in the collaboration process for the rulebook. Really, you just have to go to the CMA International website, go click on the rulebook link, it'll send you right to the GitHub project go from there, look at the, uh, the issues button near the top in the menu uh, folder, and you'll see a bunch of issues. You can click on one. It's almost like a message board, uh, read the various different, you know, read the initial comment, the, the follow-up comments and so forth. And at the bottom, uh, you can supply your own comments if you want to, right? Um, it's all available and it's all public. Uh, and that's fantastic. Now getting to my butt, um, One of the things that's really important when we are talking about all this stuff publicly is understanding how we need to have collaborational effectiveness, right? So what's important is don't just jump on to the uh, issues list, click on an issue and comment, I really think X, right? That's not terribly productive. Uh, You know, you can list your conclusions. You can certainly provide your preferences and say, you know, hey, I just want, I I really want this rule to be X, right? And that's fine, but then provide some reasoning, you know, provide your rationale and that sort of stuff. That's sort of point number one that I would say is really important. Don't just share your preferences, justify your preferences, explain why you're coming to that particular conclusion. You don't have to convince anybody necessarily, right? But show kind of show your work, show your thinking work around how to get there. That definitely helps encourage people to at least consider your point of view a little bit more effectively. The second thing is you kind of have to be willing to not have the world agree with you at first. In other words, if you're proposing something that is, let's say, non-conventional, uh, or you're proposing a fairly large change, you kind of have to. Throw it out there, let the world kind of react to it, and then slowly work with the world to convince them over time. You know, like, you know, you can provide the greatest argument all at once, and you're still not going to convince more than maybe three percent of quizzing them. Rather, just be patient be willing to have people not agree with you for the longest time continue to defend your point of view be willing to allow yourself to be changed right because i think the idea of coming to the table in discussions and collaboration like this is we would like other people to come to the table in good faith being willing to have their minds be changed therefore Similarly, we need to come to the table with our minds uh, willing to be changed, and in that sense, we can have open, honest uh, collaboration. We can even say we can even be really blunt, you know, about some of our feelings. Like we can say, "Wow, I really hate this idea, and here's why I really hate this idea." And and I mean, part of the part of the importance of being able to do that is in collaboration online, recognizing that individuals are not the sum of their contributions online, right? So if someone reacts negatively to a suggestion of yours, remember that they're reacting to your suggestion, not to you, right? Don't take it personal. Uh, Try to understand where they're coming from and move on. And also, I think it's it's useful to understand that Not everybody who's going to be interacting online is going to necessarily be as mature as you are interacting online. So sometimes we have to extend an extra measure of patience for people who are not willing to see that we aren't criticizing them personally. We're actually criticizing an idea. Uh, So yeah, I don't know,
1: Scott, uh, I should stop there. Scott, what are your thoughts on stuff like that? I have a devil's advocate question for you, which is what if someone thinks, hey, I might have this wonderful idea and I phrase it well, but at the end of the day, there's a very limited number of people on the rules committee. And if they just don't like the idea for whatever reason, it's not going to happen. And I don't like that.
0: Well, yeah, that's the, that's a very true, the, all of that can be true. Um, what's the devil's advocate quandary then?
1: Well, I guess I was trying to hint at like, do we think that the way that rules should happen would just be like an equal vote for any of like 200 people that might be an interested party? Versus, you know, on one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is there's just this one rules book person who makes all of the final decisions. And then our current world is somewhere in between, right? Having a um voted on committee of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, ideally, I think... I did, the reality is the way that things are working right now is we have a um, we we have a committee. I, th- I forget if it's five or six people, uh, and those people are going to vote, and the majority of of the the votes from that committee are is what's going to end up happening. Uh, right that. Being said, so so in reality, what you're doing is when you are proposing an idea, you are ultimately trying to convince those five or six people to agree with you, or at least you're trying to convince a majority of those five or six people to agree with you, right? But you are engaging those people directly and you're engaging them transparently with all of Quizzingdom, which means the rest of Quizzingdom can also jump in and share their opinion. So if you can get 10 or 20 or 50 people to jump in and agree with you, not just saying, I agree with Scott, right? But but saying rather like, I agree and here's additional information as to why, right? Uh, you get enough of those people there uh, by sheer amounts of numbers, I, I think maybe you start to convince a majority of those five or six people on the rules book committee to change their mind, or at least be open to the consideration if you don't get them to change their mind if you're not able to sway a majority of them your issue doesn't vanish it's not deleted right it's it's always there now it might be declined by the rules committee to be you know proceeded on and actually integrated into the rule book but it always exists right it's always there it might be closed but it's it's archived and so at some later date it can be resurrected it can be referenced and reconsidered and that could be it could be reconsidered by a future rulebook committee and it could be maybe reconsidered by you being on the you know future rulebook committee right so the way uh the way the rulebook committee works is uh everybody who's on the rulebook committee is there for one season and one season only And then they uh, have to be re-elected. And how are they elected? And re-elected is probably not the right word. I guess appointed is probably a better word. Ultimately, the CQLT appoints the, I don't know, five or six people, whatever it is. Uh, The CQLT annually appoints people to the rulebook committee. You can be indefinitely uh, appointed to the rulebook committee, but there's always an annual reconsideration of who... Uh, is going to be on the rulebook committee. So, if you want to be on the rulebook committee and you currently aren't on the rulebook committee, you should start advocating uh, to probably your district director, and then via your district director to the, the folks on the CQLT, uh, so that you can be, you know, considered for the CQLT. And and honestly, honestly, the best way to be considered for the rulebook committee is to get involved in the rulebook process while not being on the rulebook committee, right? Like going to GitHub, you know, creating an account, commenting on issues, thinking through things, engaging in the conversation. That really sets you up as somebody who's like, okay, this person is uh, engaged. They've got, they're thinking through things. I may not agree with them all, you know, all the time, but they're definitely thinking through things and trying to justify their opinions. And they are... Uh, they're causing me to think in new ways that I wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, that's a great way to sort of build up your CV for consideration for a future rulebook committee.
1: Yep, I would agree with that. And, and I think the the ability to post issues and respond to issues in public is going to, um, I guess, reward or incentivize arguments that are well-written and clear and that are arguing for a specific I guess, end state or result. Because I know that, like for for myself, example, I really like reference questions. I would love for there to be double um, in a quiz. But if I wanted to make that argument, I would have to like lay out, why do I think that this end result is better? Do I think that there is a benefit to having double reference questions and thus less of all the other types? And I would have to make that case. I'm not sure I can make that case. Um, but that's kind that's what you would have to do is it, not just state, I don't like X or I really like Y. You have to say, like, what would be the result of it as far as um, incentives to memorize the material or the amount of luck versus non-luck in the competition or the amount of experience and skill that would then be necessary to be a quiz master if we, you know, introduced more quiz master requirements, say. Um, And I think that those are very useful conversations to have. Yeah, totally indeed.
0: Well, uh, what should we talk about? We Maybe we should talk about why does the rulebook matter? Uh, So, Scott, in your opinion, why does the rulebook matter? Like, why? I mean, obviously, you and I are pedantic nerds, so we make it a point to care about the rulebook. But for people who are not so pedantically inclined as we, why should everyone care about the rulebook?
1: Right. And you're right, like... I would enjoy talking about the rule book just for its own sake, but that's not true of most people, right? And that doesn't in itself make the rule book useful. So I think like why the rule book matters is we have this whole competition set up and that's the basis for creating incentive to memorize. And when I say that's the basis, like the whole competition, when I, when I say the whole competition, I don't mean that um, you have to be motivated purely by the competition to have any reason to to memorize but it's the structure of the competition and the meets and the multi-day meets and the practices and having teammates and like there are many different aspects that might be incentives for someone to memorize but it's all like stemming from the fact that we have a competition and the competition has a structure as defined by the rule book but every little thing that we decide has um has implications, good or bad. Um, one of them is how much luck do we want to be involved in quizzing? I could design something that's not luck based at all, which is a quoting B where you are. I mean, I guess a little, little luck, whether you are randomly assigned a short verse or a long verse each time, but like we just, you know, you go through and each quizzer gets a verse to quote. And if you can't quote one, you're out. Well, there'd be very little luck there, right? It would completely reward people that know the material the best um, across the whole material. But the fact that it has close to zero luck means that it's really not that much fun. It's not terribly fun for most of the participants and it's not terribly fun to watch. And so that would drag um, incentives to memorize down. On the complete flip side, let's say it was almost all luck-based where maybe every question was just randomly assigned to a quizzer. Um, that would also kind of reduce motivation because I could be like, hey, I could study really hard. um, But if I'm randomly assigned really hard questions or fewer questions than someone else, I might score less and do less well competitively for nothing that I could have controlled. And that would be less incentive. So it's kind of like I'm showing either complete luck or no luck at all are both not really places that we want to be. And so if you look at the rule book now, it's defined a structure that is in the middle somewhat. And I think it is useful to have conversations about like, do we like where we're at right now? You know, things that contribute to luck are um, quizzers don't know what the questions are going to be. Right. Um, there's not the exact same distribution of types in every quiz. Um some things that are um, on the opposite side um, are we tell you a lot of the question types, right? Um, you know the material. You know there are restrictions around how questions can be phrased. So like there are, there are aspects that bring the luck side of it or the randomness side of it down. Uh, but at the end of the day, everything about the rulebook is, is meant to create a competitive structure that incentivizes whatever we want to incentivize, right? There's a rule in there that the quiz quiz master or any official can foul anyone for anything that they deem to be against the spirit of quizzing. Well, on one hand, you don't like that as a competitor because you could get fouled for almost anything, right? I don't know what it is in advance. How do I know? But on the other hand, like, we want people to try to conduct themselves with some sense of decorum, so... That's the reason that we have that in there. And that can be debated, right? Um, but I think if you just always analyze the second and third effects or results of any rule, then you kind of have a basis for saying, like, do I think that this should continue to exist or do I think it should continue to change? And that's always rooted in, like, do I think it creates more of something good or um, or something different for the competitive competitive landscape i feel like i didn't express myself very well <laughs> At,
0: well no i mean i i think you did because i'm like like i'm listening to you and i'm i totally agree with everything you said and i'm struggling to figure anything that i would
1: add to it honestly right like, and i i'm trying to think of something else to add myself because i think we all have preferences right like i know that as a question writer and as a quiz master i i, I despise situation questions right but that's my preference when it comes to those qual- like those roles that I've had, um, it might be it might be a more difficult type relatively to the other ones to write and to rule on, but that doesn't make it bad for quizzing, right? And so if I wanted to make a different argument as like, is there something that we could modify about the definition of situation questions that make them easier or clearer to write and easier or clearer to rule on? Without changing how they're presented to quizzers and what sorts of incentives they provide to quizzers, then that could be a useful discussion. But if I'm just like, uh, oh, it's harder for me to write these. I wish that there were fewer of them in a quiz. It's like not a very valid conclusion that I've made there right indeed
0: well, uh is there anything specific in the rulebook or the rulebook project that you would want to talk about
1: I'm trying to think I should have pulled up all the issues because I was Commenting on a, a handful of them last night. There are um, many,
0: and not all issues. I mean, I should point out not all issues are created equal. Some of them are like fix the typo in this heading, you know, kind of stuff. That they're they're really tiny, tiny things, right? Um, but then there are other issues that are significant. So there are things like what's the point of you know context in terms of. Uh, let's say, interrogative questions. How would we define that? Is that defined effectively? Are those things uh, positive net things for quizzing, or are they neutral or negative, right? Uh, How should we consider adjusting question type distribution to maybe even further optimize, uh, incentivize quizzers to memorize, Uh, the same sort of stuff with reference questions that Scott was talking about, Uh, our material rotation schedule, you know, all of these things interact in different ways and have uh, I mean there's all sorts of different levels of um I mean one of them here I'm just scrolling down there's the married clause uh right so the infamous married clause old rule books had a statement uh that quizzers must not be uh married uh this seems like an odd statement or perhaps needs to go by the wayside but it's not in the 2018 uh rule book uh why was the rule there and why was it removed right Uh, inquiring minds want to know. (laughs) So, I mean, and I remember that clause. It's definitely not in the 2018 rulebook. It's not in the, you know, the current, uh, functionally equivalent alteration or, or refactor whatever of the rulebook, uh, that the, the gang of four created, uh, So yeah, but I definitely remember it existing in a, in a, you know, a rule book from like the, the late nineties. Uh, why was it there? Why was it removed? Uh, it's very interesting question.
1: Right. I think one example of a fun issue to debate and talk about, um, that is currently being talked about. So you can jump over to GitHub and provide your thoughts is, um, there was a proposal and when I say proposal, um, it is just someone who put, who wrote an issue on GitHub and said, like, what if we considered removing um, the the notion or the definition of context when it comes to, I believe, interrogative, multiple answer, and situation questions. What's um, the issue number? Let's see, um,
0: fifty
1: six. Fifty six. That way, I, so I, you know, people can jump in and take a look at it specifically. So I guess this proposal was to more explicitly define it, because right now it says five verses before or after or up or down, but it doesn't say if it should be inclusive of the verse that the question is in or exclusive of that, and it also doesn't say um, where you should start from. Um, So, like, let's say the question is in verse one, but the answer spans all the way into verse two or something like that. Like, is context five verses above verse, verse one and also below verse two. Um, and then you still have the inclusive or exclusive question. So, but then it kind of, the issue has evolved as often issues do into like, what if we didn't even have context on interrogatives, multiple answers and situations? Like what is the potential there, right? And someone brought up, well, it might create a scenario where quizzers just jump faster um, on average because they are assured of their own material knowledge and they know if they jump on something like blessed are from Matthew, well, I could quote the entire Beatitudes, right? All of the blessed are from verses 3 to 11 and be counted correct because they would, none of them would be out of context from each other because there would be no notion of context on interrogatives. I think that's a very useful one to talk about, right? Because some people like me think that that's not a problem. If someone jumps on blessed are and quotes those um, nine verses correctly within 30 seconds, I am more than happy to um call them correct. Assuming but, they they don't provide any incorrect information along the way. Right. And I am getting there. Yeah, oh sorry. Um, um, but someone might have a differing opinion, right? Like maybe it encourages quizzers to um quote very, very, very fast more more often than now, right? And maybe that's not something that we want to necessarily encourage. Um, but another thing that was that was kind of discussed was does the fact that the quizzer is saying information that is in context, make that information any less cor- any less incorrect potentially. And so I'm of the opinion that judging a, that a quizzer is out of context versus in context yeah. and have they given me incorrect information or have they not given me incorrect information are completely separate um, calculations that the quiz master needs to make. I do remember when I quizzed, you would hear coaches say, like, um, just be quoting and be in context. The implication being, if I am qu- saying content that is in context, I cannot be ruled incorrect. And I don't think that that's true. And I see, I don't hear that advice. And I don't really see quiz masters saying like, well, you said a different proper name, but that proper name occurs in this five verse context, so I can't call you incorrect. Like I haven't heard that bit, that specific argument made, and I think that, that would be an incorrect argument. But I think it's useful to talk about, right? Like um does the fact that content a quiz saying is in context right now, should that have any bearing on um the quizmaster deciding if it's incorrect information? And this issue is like providing us the ability to talk about those sorts of implications when you're ruling on a question. And like if context went away, would things change all that much? Right? Like maybe today, if a quizzer is clearly out of context, they could also be called incorrect for giving incorrect information. So, um, had not having context doesn't give me any fewer reasons to rule a quizzer incorrect and doesn't require any less precision from a quizzer. They still have to be saying things that are not incorrect The whole time, Um, even if they're saying it from all reaches of the material, because I would be pretty hard pressed as a quizzer to quote from all over the material, um, but not say anything incorrect.
0: Right, indeed. Well, and I mean, you're talking about like the the idea of answering versus quoting, and you're pointing out quite correctly that there is no difference in the rule book, there's no conceptual difference between answering and quoting, Uh, but. Uh, you know, I, I posted an issue. It happens to be issue 111, uh, the same number as this episode, as it turns out, coincidentally, um, although there are no coincidences. Bwahaha. But in issue 111, uh, I actually point out that actually there are cases where I think inadvertently quizmasters are counting quizzers correct who are in fact providing incorrect information technically, but are obviously quoting uh and uh, you know is that is should that be okay like right now technically there isn't a way in the rule book to make that okay or to be able to justify that ruling but i've i've definitely say, seen quizmasters at all levels you know district level uh, great west internationals i've seen them rule this way uh not commonly uh but it does happen and i'm like well do you, we should have the discussion like like is this okay do we consider this to be an acceptable thing or not and if we do, where are the boundaries uh, for that acceptability? Because, I mean, ultimately, what I do not want to have happen is to say, well, it's not that big of a deal, so we're going to leave it up to the quiz master. Like, well, no, because then it's not fair. And if if there's quizzing going on that's not fair, that's demotivating, right? And it, I mean, and we're not talking about like quiz masters who are intentionally trying to be unfair. I, I don't think that happens. Well, I mean, maybe it happens, but very I think rarely. there are other, yeah, very rarely. And I, I think there are other mechanisms that can take care of that. I think what, what is potentially a problem is inadvertent unfairness, right? Where a quiz master is themselves consistent in their room, but is inconsistent with other quiz masters. And we cannot, in a lot of cases, ensure that everyone Uh, All of the teams at a particular meet have exactly the same number of quizzes with, you know, every single Quizmaster. Obviously, we strive for that. We strive to have everybody move around from room to room and have experienced different Quizmasters and so forth. But you're naturally, it's not going to be naturally perfectly even all the time. And even if it was, the teams that you're competing with are going to be different in those contexts, right? So ultimately, what we can control is ensuring that Quizmasters are more and more uniform and the way that we ensure that is with objective rules and thus why, you know, issue 111 exists to basically say like, okay, well, this is a place where we're not being as uniform as we should. uh, What do we want to do about it? right? And it's kind of throwing it out there to the universe saying, okay, universe, uh, what do you think about it? And well, throwing it out to quizzing them, which I guess is synonymous in the universe in my mind. Uh, but we're throwing it out to the quizzing them and saying, okay, quizzing what do you think about this situation?
1: Right. And I think it's useful talking about that ticket 111 just briefly, because I don't think I haven't seen problems with Quizmasters implementing the fact that everything a quizzer is saying is an answer or a or could be an answer, but they might say them in different kinds of tones and inflections, um, which might cause us as English-speaking humans to label one sort of response by the quizzer as more of an answer than another one. Um, Because, like, let's say the quizzer jumps on a question that's, who is the Son of God? And they just stand up and say, John. Well, it's very clear that they gave me an answer, um, but you could also say that they just they said words— and I'm going to deem them incorrect because they answered my question incorrectly. Um, but they could also jump up and maybe they're quoting um, the verse that's right there. And they say, and the verse is like, John is the disciple and Jesus is the son of God. Um, and you could then say like, well, the first word that they spoke in both responses is John. Yet in one scenario, I called them incorrect. And the other one, I didn't because of additional words that they said, like how how am I supposed to take what is said or not said in the rule book and make the different and back up how I rule differently? And I think what you're saying is it's kind of hard to point to something specific in the rule book that says, like, why you should be ruling differently on those two responses by the quizzer. And so, like, did I capture what you... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. Um, And so, like, obviously, if a quizzer just gets up and says, John... I think every quiz master is calling them incorrect. And if a quizzer also gets up and says, John is a, disi- is a disciple and Jesus is the son of God, every quiz master is ruling the quizzer correct. But that might be the most easy kind of um, example of this problem that I can have. Like, what if you could construct other potential scenarios that would be much more difficult for a quizmaster to rule on because the rule book doesn't really comment on how to evaluate information that a quizzer is providing right because i guess i guess a really good one would be let's say that they pause for one tenth of a second they say john is a disciple and jesus is the son of god are they okay what if it's four tenths of a second what if it's nine seconds right and so now you're like wait so is there an amount of time that we can define as the pause that makes one okay but the other not okay that feels weird and now you're down the road of like, okay. I kind of want to write something to the rule book that doesn't rely on a specific unit of time that makes this both easy for the quiz master, but sets a very clear and fair expectation to all competitors. Yep, exactly. And I think that is where the problem arises, um, is almost 100% of the time, a quizzer does one or the other. They say just the word John, so they're incorrect, or they just quote the verse, and so they're correct, even if they said the word John first. Um, but... Just because that's what happens most of the time doesn't, doesn't change the fact that the rulebook is deficient in this manner. Um, because you could absolutely get that scenario where a quizzer says John and pauses for one-tenth of a second and then continues on quoting the verse correctly. Um, and then you are left as as an official to rule on something that the rulebook doesn't uh, comment on. I totally
0: agree. Well, is there another uh, issue that you find particularly interesting. I'm trying I'm scrolling down the list here trying to look at stuff that might be fun to talk about.
1: I think the one about a quizmaster forgetting to start the timer is also a really fascinating one. Yeah, because, let's talk about that one. Yeah. Because obviously, if I forget to start the timer as a quizmaster and then I remember, and I'm pretty sure that it was like only a couple seconds. Um, and then I start my timer. So let's say I think it was 2 seconds. So I start my 30 second timer and I'm just going to call time at t- two seconds left on the timer right so 28 additional seconds for a total of 30 um well if the quizzer answers correctly in five more seconds then obviously it doesn't matter if the amount of time that actually elapsed before i started the timer was two seconds or if it was one Mm -hmm. or if it was four it doesn't really matter because the quizzer answered correctly so fast But you can easily construct a scenario where the quizzer only gets it right in their last couple seconds, or they get it right but one second after time. And in those scenarios, as a quiz master, I I would have to know exactly how long I delayed in starting the 30-second timer. Otherwise, I have not given them 30 seconds. And whether or not I give them 31, 29, 32, 28, you, you could make the argument that, What is one second here or there um, when all Quizmasters maybe don't start the timer at exactly the right instant or consistent instant anyway? So a second is a second and we're all fine. But the reality is like we should have a way to deal with this scenario that doesn't rely, that doesn't introduce variance um, in fairness because of the quizzers' good or bad judgment in how long they delayed in starting the timer.
0: Yeah. The quiz master's delay in starting the timer. Right. Exactly. Like, and the thing is, like we talked about this in a past podcast episode in the moment, a quiz master's mind is not going to have a, a reasonably accurate reflection of the reality of the time that's passed. Right. Um, and we've, we've talked about how the brain, you know, in, in critical situations, time can be perceived as slowing down or speeding up. Right. And, there's really no way for the quizmaster to perceptually know this. Now, again, if we're talking about a situation where, okay, you, you started the timer five seconds late and six seconds later, the quizzer answers the question, okay, great. I mean, sure, no harm, no foul, but you can't possibly know that that's going to happen until like... The timer runs out or the quizzer answers, right? So like let's say the, the the quizzer jumps, I forget to start the timer. I think it's been five seconds, so I give them 25 seconds and then they answer like one second before the timer goes off, right? Or they start to answer, even worse scenario, they realize where they what they what they need to quote. They start quoting, they're absolutely correct. They're quoting word perfectly really fast because it's like, okay, great, I know where I'm at now. And it turns out they just don't get the last word or two in before the timer uh beeps. Like, okay, well, what do you do? Do you say, well, you're incorrect because you needed about one more second to finish your time? And you didn't get it, but I didn't start the timer exactly right. So maybe you actually did have one more second to complete your time, but I can't like, like, okay, but how do you know? Right. And then you say like, okay, well, because you got the question incorrect, because the timer went off and because I didn't start the timer on time, I'm going to redo the question based on what the quizzer did, like, ew, ew, right? Like, like that seems awfully squeaky. Um, like, and I, I mean, and so like, like going through all these scenarios, I, I, I keep coming back to this notion of like, as annoying as it might be for the quiz master, I think the only like totally fair, reasonable thing to do is to say, when you forget to start the timer, you toss the question, you do it over again. And like, okay, if a quiz master is doing that, like three or four times a quiz, then the, quizzer, the quiz the quizmaster master maybe should start working on not having that problem. Like, like to me, that that would be the the, the path of, of making this better is like, let's improve the quality of our quiz masters, not allow the quiz masters to continue to be
1: sloppy. Sure. And that could be idealistic, right? Like maybe you're already having problems finding enough quiz masters and and this is an extra requirement of minimum requirement to be a quiz master is you can't forget to start the timer more than a couple times a quiz. Uh, You know, there are other considerations that that could need to be made. But I think it is helpful when talking about this to like what is kind of the core – a core belief. And I think one of my core beliefs around it is that the officials – are there to instill complete confidence in everybody that the competition is fair. Yes. Which is why I think um, if, as a quiz master, you slightly stumble reading a question, you should make the determination on if you are going to throw that question out or not as soon as absolutely possible. Because the longer that you wait to see, like, oh, that didn't confuse the quizzer at all, or it looks like it completely confused the quizzer um, you very quickly get into a scenario where any participant fairly or unfairly might try to read into what the quizmaster is doing they might be like hey like quizmaster it didn't seem to confuse the quizzer but the quizmaster threw it out didn't seem to confuse the quizzer but the quizmaster then threw it out and i noticed that the team that jumped was the same church as this quizmaster and then hmm, right. right and like that could be a totally unfair observation and assumption by a participant. But I think it is very important for the officials to try to um, not even present that small of an opportunity. And if you are saying, like, if I'm making the call, like, as soon as I slightly stumble on reading a question, whether or not I'm going to throw it out or just keep going, um, I think you kind of have to live with that. Well, you don't have to live with it you can change your mind at any time but you really should be striving to make that decision as quickly as possible so that what the quizzer is doing while answering the question does not influence other people's interpretations of the quizmaster's actions even if the quizmaster is is making completely unbiased determinations throughout
0: right and 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 i it's really important to understand here like if a quizzer perceives a quizmaster as being unfair is a typical quizzer going to actually go confront the quiz master about it or tell their coach about it? Like, I would think probably not. I think maybe you grumble a little bit to your coach about it after the fact, but that's kind of the end of it and that never really goes anywhere, right? And so it's like, okay, but like that's a demotivating event, right? Um, if a quizzer perceives that a quiz master is being unfair, even if it's totally wrong, right? The quiz master is inherently demotivated to invest more time in studying, in, in uh, more time preparing for, for quizzing. And like, that's, that should be anathema to us. Like we should be striving to try to find the ways to be as objectively fair as possible, knowing, you know, certainly we're human, we're going to make mistakes. It's never going to be perfect. Right. But, but looking for ways that we can, you know, asymptotically approach perfection, uh, approach, you know, objective fairness, uh, I think anything that we can do there is beneficial to encourage, uh, well, and actually it's really so much, not so much encourage, it's to avoid discouraging uh, memorization.
1: Right. And so at the end of the day, I think if someone said, hey, what's a second here too?" and maybe a quizzer got 32 seconds, and I don't think that that's a big problem. I don't think that that statement is incorrect, <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't useful to try to improve the rule book or be a better official or discuss whether we want to change something, right? Right.
0: That rule, by the way, is, or sorry, not rule. That issue is, uh, if
1: you want to chime in on this is issue 72. It reminds me of, I think, I think you ended up disagreeing with me because we talked about this on the podcast, but um, it was in a PNW meet and it was a bonus an assigned seat bonus question. No, a team bonus question. Um, the whole question was read before the team jumped. But the question had, I think, two words out of place. And so technically was not valid because it was not a phrase that exists in the material. Hmm. Um, but, and it ended up being challenged because I think the team got the bonus, the team bonus wrong. But the quiz master and their answer judge made the determination that like, well, we're reading the whole whole question. You jumped after the whole question. <laughs> and so, like, it was completely unrelated to anything. Um, I, I can't remember if there was an argument around whether or not the word out of place made it more difficult for the team to locate it in the material or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that that was – I think I supported what the officials did, but you didn't. And I don't – I don't even know how I think now. But um, it just shows I think that's an example of I don't know. Is that an is that is that an example of something that could be written cl- more clearly in the rule book? Like well, should 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 a, a quizmaster be considering whether or not um, their error or the question's invalidity or something had an impact on a question or a quiz or a quizzer? Should that never be something that a quizmaster should do?
0: I get uncomfortable with the notion of never, um,
1: but maybe, I don't know. Because I think we dealt with it, like, what if a quizmaster's quiz I mean, a quizzer is just kind of talking to themselves while answering at a really low volume, but you as the quiz master are able to hear, should you equally judge that content as able to count the quiz are correct and able to count the quiz or incorrect, meaning you shouldn't pass any judgment on whether or not they intended to say something loud enough for you to hear? Right,
0: right, and that that yeah, that becomes very problematic because like I don't at at what you're exactly to the same point of like, well, how long is a pause in a phrase given such that it becomes you know instead of quoting a phrase, it's providing an answer like with the John dot 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 thing. Similarly, like. I I really don't want to go down that road because, like, then we have to say, okay, well, at precisely two seconds, well, then, okay, how do you measure that and how do you make that objective? And it's just like, that is a rabbit hole. I do not want to fall down, there be dragons, right? Um, Similarly, you know, a, a quizzer audibly mumbling but at a very low level like then we have to have decimal meters to say like anything below a certain decimal amount is considered not a non-answer and shall be ignored but above a certain decimal point shall be accepted like at some point like that that's uh, there be dragons as well right and so, you know, we definitely have a scenario of, like, if somebody says the right answer, but the quiz master didn't hear it, it doesn't matter, right? They can literally say the correct answer, but if it's so quiet that only the person who is, like, let's say they stand up from their chair, but they don't walk forward, uh, literally only the person directly to their left who was seated heard them. And they say, "Well, yeah, they said the correct answer, and I'm on a different team, so it's okay." Like it's like, "Well, I believe you, but I still can't count the quizzer correct." Um, like we we've made the determination that ultimately it comes down to the quizmaster or answer judge has to hear it, right? Similarly, like, well, you know, if if a quizzer is mumbling something, but the quizmaster hears it, it's like, "Well, that's that's the line, that's the decimal meter." Uh, yeah, I mean I don't know how
1: else to be objective about that. Right, I think I've kind of convinced myself that it doesn't matter if you know that your error had no impact. Um so, I think I disagree with what the officials did even though I think it's completely defensible. I think they probably should have redone it. But it's it's very similar to let's say a Quizzers answering um and 29 seconds into their 30 second timer, I rule them as having gone out of context. And then later, maybe I'm challenged, and they're like, I don't think I said enough to take me out of context. Well, it really wouldn't matter if, with one second left on their timer, they had another 20 words that they needed to say to be counted correct. That fact is irrelevant, that they could not have possibly gotten it correct, even if I had not – even if I had correctly not ruled them for going out of context and given them their final second, right? That can't be part of my determination. It's like I made an incorrect ruling, and – because we can't know what would have happened in that final second, um, we have to, like, redo this entire question. So I think that that is, that is a useful principle, and it made me think of something else that is gone now. It was something around assuming intent. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I've seen this happen, like, at a Great West quiz, where a quiz master will be reading a quote question. they will say, like, quote Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, and then a quizzer jumps and then quotes it all correctly, and then either gets more or silence from the quizmaster. I can't remember which is correct. And then they say verse fifteen. I mean fourteen. And so it's like the whole room knows that like they just kind of made um, a verbal error when, of course, they heard fourteen and just needed to finish that en. But like that's irrelevant. Like as a quiz master, you were given, they said the word 15 and that makes them incorrect. And so, you know, that's a very clear way where you can be pretty assured of the intent of the quizzer. They weren't trying to fool anyone. They just made a mistake. But like, that's not grounds for ignoring what they said. Yeah, indeed. Exactly. And I don't think I've ever seen that ruled on in a way that I would deem incorrect. Like every time the quizmaster like gets really sheepish and it's like, I feel bad about this, but I'm going to have to call you incorrect. <laughs> Right. Well, and I would feel bad
0: too. Like, like I've, I've been in those situations and I hate calling quizzers incorrect on little things like that. I mean, I shouldn't call it little, but like where clearly they've memorized, clearly they, they know what is correct, uh, but it was just sort of a verbal hiccup and and like, like, I hate calling them incorrect, but it's important to count them incorrect, not for their sake, but the sake of the other quizzers, right? Because if I count them correct. If I let that slide, how can I do that objectively fairly for everyone? And it's like, if there's a way we can objectively do that fairly for everyone, then great. I'm in, right? Like I would rather go down the road of, of less incorrect, more correct where, where possible, because I think that's more encouraging, right? As long as we can do that objectively, fairly for everyone, like universally. And if we can do that, great. But if we can't get there for whatever reason, or we haven't, maybe we can get there, but we haven't figured out a way to get there yet, objectively and fairly, then it's like, yeah, we, I, I fear, not fear, I believe we, we must do the unfortunate, uncomfortable, we don't like it thing of, of counting a quiz or incorrect.
1: Right. Um, so I think now I kind of want to write an issue right, to submit the proposal of the officials cannot consider whether their mistake or a, que- a written question being invalid um, had a material impact on the quiz or getting it correct, incorrect, being confused, being not confused. And you just have to rely on what the rule book says. Like, did I do something incorrect as, a qu- as an official that means I need to redo this? Is the question invalid, which means that it needs to be redone? Right.
0: Well, I mean you should you should totally file it, right? I mean maybe it doesn't get considered this iteration or something like that, but I mean it's le- at least it's it's there. It can be considered at some point in the future. Right.
1: Well, any other last parting thoughts? I think my only last parting thought is this is a way that is very democratic that anyone can advocate for um something that they want. And I think that that is pretty cool because I think a lot of quizzing can feel like things happen via a somewhat limited number of people. Um, not in, not in like an intentional dictatorial type way, but just like there are the people that have been involved with quizzing for a while, or for whatever reason, just seem to be uh, more influential. And like I think it could be easy to feel, especially if you're in a smaller district, like things just kind of happen, and I don't get much of a say. Well, this is a big way for you to have. A say, right? Like um, having to write down your thoughts in a GitHub issue is a, a very, it's a very democratic way of doing things because um, everyone's comment kind of looks the same, right? <laughs> right? It's not like someone someone gets a badge that says like put more stock into this one, um, mm-hmm. and so I think that that's cool. And I think the longer I'm involved with any sort of organization, be it a work company or a volunteer organization like quizzing, um, people, anyone that's participating wants to feel like they have some amount of say or influence with what happens. Um, for some people maybe less important than others, but everyone doesn't want to feel like it just happens to them. They want to have at least the ability to have influence. And I think that this gives you that ability and that creates people that are, uh, more bought in and feel like they have more of a, a stake in what's happening. Indeed. And I'll throw another one out there.
0: Writing comments like this and writing feedback and discussion online, essentially being forced to articulate your opinion, to articulate your thoughts in writing makes you smarter. Like there is the the more you write critical thinking concepts like this, the smarter you will become as a result. So it is a, it's a fan. It's, it's essentially it's like, a, it's like going to the gym and working out for your brain, right? Um, and you should do that because it's healthy and good.
1: Yep. I wrote a comment last night and then realized it wasn't written very well. So I wrote a follow-up. And then I realized that wasn't written very well. And so I wrote another follow-up. And that's just kind of what writing it does. You write it down and then you read it back. And you're like, boy, I didn't make a strong case at all. Like, I wouldn't agree with me. And then you have to decide to either write it better? Or do I actually don't think this? Um, It just, it forces a lot of good things. Yeah, indeed. Well, and on that
0: bombshell, we should wrap things up. Want to remind everybody, of course, if you disagree with anything that Scott and I have said, you should email us at iq at cbqz.org. But since we talked mostly about the rulebook project, if you disagree with anything that we have said, or even hinted at or pointed at, you should probably actually, you know, sneak off to GitHub and sign up for a user account and start posting your comments uh, in the appropriate places, so but if you have any questions about anything uh, or topics you'd like to like us to cover on the show, please email us again. the email address is iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us on Twitter, our account is at inside quizzing, and you can chat with us in kind of sort of almost real time on the bible quizzing slack channel inside quizzing and that and with that said, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott
1: similarly thanks griffin for being a co-host and thanks to everyone for listening